Uh, we are recording. Right? Okay. Welcome to Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast. We are an official Apple podcast, and we're on Stitcher and Spotify and all those other places. And I am Brother Migs Burroughs. And I'm Trace Burroughs. And today we have on the show Jim Messina, uh, musician, producer, engineer. I didn't know you were those other things, producer and engineer, who's been in many, several, you know, really well-known groups, like Buffalo Springfield, Poco, and he was half of the rock duo Loggins and Messina. Maybe you're best known for that. I'm not sure. Um, sold over 20 million records with 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 Loggins, Kenny Loggins. And um, I had a question about that. It almost became um, a Fogelberg and Messina <laughs> instead of Loggins. Uh, do, do you want to tell us how that, how that happened, went down? Well, it, it was an interesting situation because I had just signed a deal with uh, Columbia Records as an independent producer, and uh, they had been giving me a number of artists. My first artist was Andy Williams, who I grew up with and loved. Um, but I, you know, I said, "Look, I'm I'm pretty young to be doing him. And, uh, <laughs> he needs, you know, he needs a, a lot more." Uh, especially uh, experience in orchestrations and stuff. And so that was a, a privilege to be asked, but I, I couldn't. Olivia Newton-John was another artist that was sent to me. And I loved what she was and what she was doing. But again, I just did not feel I was the right producer to produce the kind of music that I think she needed to go in commercially. And then Dan Fogelberg showed up, and I was really pleased about that. In fact, I, I recently realized, uh, now that I live in Nashville, uh, who, who it was that you know sent him to me it was Bonnie Garmer, who, who worked for uh, uh, Columbia in artist development, and we were talking, and I was really enjoying what he had to say and uh, what he was doing. And I said, you know, before we go any further, I said, there's there's one question I need to ask you, uh, which is important to me. And I said, why would you choose me to be your producer? What is it about me? that makes you feel like I, I can do a great job for you. And he said, well, to be honest with you, he says, I love Poco. And he says, I want to make a Poco record. <laughs> and at that moment, I just went, <laughs> Oh brother. Well, you know what? I, I said, look, I, I made $125 a week at best. I said, the music was too country for rock stations and two rock for country stations. We could not get any airplay, even though we could sell out any house. I said, I just don't want to go down that road again. I think you need to find somebody else. So by this time, I had run out of options. I was getting pretty close to the end of the year, and I'd already been paid <laughs> to work. Um, and during my POCO, um, last days with POCO in the summertime, I had met... Um, a guy named Don Ellis, who was working for Clive Davis and Artist Development. And he said, hey, listen, uh, I have a, a friend of mine, Dan Loggins, who has a little brother, and we really think he's talented. And would you be interested in hearing him? And I said, look, I got an album to finish. It's summer. I said, let's wait till the end of the year. I'll be finished with Poco and available to start you know, doing other things. So that was my first introduction to Kenny Loggins. So... There you go. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, aren't you? Are you having a, a reunion? Is that still on for July at the Hollywood? Bowl? I think so. Uh, I think so. I, I, it's uh, July fifteenth and sixteenth. 
uh, the Hollywood Bowl. We're going to do a couple of nights there. And uh, Kenny's got a new book that he's releasing. And uh, and, and recently, uh, Top Gun has come out again, and they're using his song. So this will be a wonderful time for him to promote that. Um, and, uh, and, and a wonderful time for me to, as a solo artist, because I'm out performing, you know, eight to 14 shows a month and, uh, a new band of five. And, uh, I, I'm just having more fun now than I ever did. So how, when you get together with Kenny Loggins in July and you, both of you guys probably have, have hundreds of songs together, I mean, or outside of this, you know, duo and all the projects you've done how do you guys decide on a set list how does that work out you just you work well together and just well well it's already been decided um you know kenny wanted to really didn't want to do this show not so much hollywood bowl but just go out because where he's at in life right now he had this book he was coming out with he had um you know the the top gun thing that he needed to help promote and to do a full evening of Loggins and Messina really is an hour and a half to two hours. So I suggested, I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we, why don't we, why don't we make this work for both of us? I said, I suggested instead of a Loggins and Messina show, what about doing an evening with Kenny Loggins and Jim Messina sitting in? We'll go back to the hmm. early days of what we did, uh, put together a 60 minute set that would allow you to put together a 60 minute set. Uh, we'll do, we'll do that as a set. You do you as a set, you can promote your show. You can, you know, we can do what we're doing together and, and let's see what happens because it's a lot more difficult these days to travel. Um, in many ways, I mean, just the cost of fuel is, is mm -hmm. exorbitant having three semis out on the road and doing committing to, you know, 60 to 80 dates. Uh, while that might not be much in some people's books, it, it's a killer. Mm -hmm. and I personally much would prefer to do something similar to what we're doing at the bowl. You know, pick out five, six, seven engagements a year, you know, do the bowl, do Jones Beach, you know, do do things like that and, and let the promoter put it all together. Nowadays, you know, a lot of these places have their sound systems, they have crews, they have everything. Let us just come in do what we do best, do a show and have fun. To me, that's the ideal way. And I, I'm hoping that if this show turns out the way it, it should, that that will give both of us the feeling and the freedom of this doesn't have to be a, a great big extravaganza. It can be a wonderful evening with us doing what we do and let the boys who get paid to be, you know, crew and soundmen do their job there at the venue. I mean, that that's my take on it. It's it. I mean, the backstory is so incredible and you've told it in a few different venues, but, uh, you know, where you first met Kenny Loggins and he comes over to your house, he, he doesn't, and you're ready to, you know, listen to him and where's your guitar? Oh, I didn't bring my guitar. You know, where's your, you know, he, he, he doesn't have anything. He's not, he's just not prepared. And you give him one of your guitars, right. To, to, to play. And, and, and the whole thing was like, I think people don't appreciate the fact that you, you sort of mentored and shepherded him and you were reluctant. You were a reluctant partner, right? To, in terms of initially. Yeah, I, you know, I just didn't really want to go back on the road. Uh, I was tired of it. And, um, but again, he was, 
he was hard to figure out in the beginning because, again, he was poor. He didn't have the funds and the money. And, and quite honestly, from what I recall, later on, he was in, he had a guitar, but he was embarrassed. It was not <laughs> something he wanted to drag out of the out of the coffin, I think. <laughs> but th- that said, um, I, I really felt that once I started working with him, he was really gifted. Uh, at first, it was just, you know, he had a lot of folk songs. He had Danny's song and House of the Corner. Hey, we were already into Dave Mason and, and Delaney and Bonnie and, and Leon Russell, and things were cooking in, in rock that was so much different than, than what it felt at the time that he was still in the folk days. But what really intrigued me after I just decided to spend a little time with him more and bring him back, even at first, I just didn't think he had what it took. Uh, there was something about him. And what it was is his voice. He, he was able to take, like I asked him, I said, so w- what are you doing to make a living? And he said, well, I work for ABC um, uh, Publishing Company. Uh, and, uh, and I'm there because, you know, they need a Leon Russell song or an Elton John song. He can make his voice sound like that, which <laughs> is what he thought he needed to do to get it. And he, and, he, and he had fun doing it. And there was a, there was a, golly, a, a humor, a playfulness, a willingness to, to do something other than what he had presented to me that, that intrigued me. And I also, you know, gave him some instruments when he would come over to play with, because I wanted to know how well he could play. You know, could he play? Because he didn't have a guitar when he showed up. And I just became more and more intrigued with who he was as a person. And as uh, I started realizing that I, I think there was something here, especially as a vocalist, uh, um, I started pulling together, you know, Al Garth lived below me in, in the apartment where my, my former wife and I lived. Um, Merle Bergani and, and Larry Sims were in the Sunshine Company and they'd opened for Poco. So I knew they were available because the band had dis- disassembled. Um and, and Michael Mardian, who was actually a friend of Kenny's, uh, was open and available to help us. So I began putting his band together and picking the tunes. And I knew he needed something other than the, the Pooh Corner and the, you know, uh, Danny song to really make it. So I'd had some songs started with, with Poco. Listen to a Country Song was one of them. Um, the Trilogy was something that I had been writing. Um, and... I just thought, you know what, let me let me see what his voice sounds like on other material. And Michael Martian was working with him to help him get a tune called Rock and Roll Mood together, which gave him another diversification. What really intrigued me about moving forward with Kenny after all of what I just said was I never wanted to get stuck again in a situation like I did with Poco, where your music is so typecast that there's the possibility that it will be too rock for country or too country for rock or too pop for. So I decided Kenny had the voice because he liked to do it to sing a lot of different type of songs that he was inspired originally by hearing other artists do and and copying their vocal tones. Uh, The key was getting him to get his own vocal tone and get this diversification of material, which he began to move into very, very quickly. And once the diversification came there, I began to see the ability for him to sell to a greater number of people other than just country, rock, pop, or whatever, but the whole the whole enchilada, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So um, that was that was my 
The problem then was he didn't have an agent. He didn't have a manager. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, he, he needed a lawyer. He needed a lot of things. And, and, and selfishly speaking, and I don't know if I've ever admitted this, but I wanted this thing to be a success. And if you don't sell records, if you don't get out there and play, it's just not going to happen. And so that's when I had suggested to Clive Davis reluctantly, <laughs> how about doing an album and as Kenny Loggins with Jim Messina sitting in? That would allow me to be there to help him with the band, get things organized, get him an agent, uh, actually get him a manager first so that they could pick an agent. Uh, and actually create a team that could work together to hopefully make this a success. And there's no guarantee. There never is. I mean, no matter how perfect of a team you put together, but sometimes things just click in. And I was able to really put together a great group, a great you know, team of, of professionals to support him, to get him going. When you're, and your voice is blended. At what point couldn't that even uh, be the initiative for, for putting you two together is your, your voices blended so well, or is that, can, did that almost become like a, a surprise afterwards? <laughs> well, it was really more of a surprise afterwards because, you know, I, I, Kenny is a great singer. I don't consider myself a great singer, you know? Um, but for some reason, I, when we were working together, we would have fun and we'd sing every brother's songs or something. And I would <laughs> take the low part and he'd take the high part. Um, and one of our first engagements was, uh, which, which was really just, to help out my father-in-law, who was, um, who's, who's one of his children were um, at uh, a state hospital, was to go do a little benefit to raise money for the kids. And so that was our first time to sit down with two guitars. So we were forced into learning Danny's song and forced into learning these songs. I don't even remember all the songs we did. Oh, there's only three or four, and I'm sure one of them was the Everlight Brothers. But that's where our voices began to, to blend. Um, and it wasn't until really we we did the the sitting in album, and I was just there really as a support artist, that people began to like the way we sounded together. So that was quite a surprise, to be honest with you. Mm, oh. I, I thought maybe it's still it's it's still a surprise because <laughs> I remember when Kenny and I in two thousand four had decided we were going to do the reunion in two thousand five. He asked me to sit in with him at a benefit he was doing in Santa Barbara for Christmas Unity. And uh, when I, and I, I was doing another benefit for the sheriff's council and, and I rushed over to do this and we sat down, we did three or four songs. And later he said, you know, it was the first time he realized in his life that no matter who he sings with, whether it's Michael McDonald or Christopher Cross or anybody, as is the case with me, when we sit down together <laughs> and sing, that blend just never happens unless it's us, you know? And like the Everly Brothers, I mean, they were both individually just really wonderful singers and stuff. But boy, when they sang together, mm -hmm. yeah, it was magic. So before we forget, uh, you're playing at Sacred Heart uh, University Community Theater on uh, June 23rd at 7:30. So what? hurry up, viewers, and get, get where, 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 where am I at? <laughs> Correct me if I made a mistake. Sacred Heart University Community Theater on June... Fairfield, Connecticut. Oh yes, yes, yes. You had, yes. To say, you had to say Fairfield for me to get it. That's yeah, just down the street from us. We live in Westport, Connecticut. So oh, we're down over. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to be bringing my band of five, which is basically drums, keyboards, sax, um, uh, bass, myself on guitar. 
And we'll be doing an array. My set right now, which is going to change probably in 2023, but my set right now consists of some Springfield, some Pocos, some Logs, some Messina, some of my solo works. And it does start out acoustic. And by the end of the show, we're going to be getting into some real Latin jazz. And yeah. I've got some great players uh, that I love working with. So it's, it's going to be fun. So Buffalo... I used to listen to the Buffalo Springfield record all the time. I remember back in, was it 68 or whenever it was, I was at my friend's house and that, that was always the record they put on. Which one was that? Do you remember? I, can't, I don't remember. It's so like. Do you remember any of the songs? No, I just remember I really liked it. <laughs> it's stone to remember. If I gave you a title, would it cause your earphones to do this? Maybe <laughs> you'd have to rattle. What about, what about Kind Woman? Do you remember that song? I'm so bad with names. I just remember, I loved listening to it, and um, for some reason, and um, and you know, it made me feel good. Well, so you'll to make you feel better if you show up to the show. That is, uh, we'll be doing like um, "Kind Woman" off of that. And uh, that was one of the first songs, and I do that mainly because we've lost Rusty Young, who was in Poco now, he passed mm -hmm. about a year or so ago. Um, I first met Rusty having been in New York recording and producing the Buffalo Springfield. Um, and one of the songs that we did was Kind Woman. I bring that up because uh, Neil and Stephen were supposed to be there and Dewey. And I don't think Neil ever got on the plane. And Stephen, the day of the uh, session, I think he got lost down in the village. It's easy to do. <laughs> and again, you know, Dewey Martin, we all know him as a sp spiritual human being. And, uh, really indulging in the spirits and uh, <laughs> showed up very spirited and unable yeah. to perform. So yeah. that left me in a position where Arif Mardin said, listen, I'll get you the best jazz musicians in town and we'll, we'll get this going. So, he, and he did. And the problem is they were the best jazz musicians. And uh, that was not the album I was recording. Anyway, they did a great job. I brought it back to LA and I told Richie, I said, you know, this is this isn't working. It's just it's good, but it's not it's not Buffalo Springfield. I mean, even though Neil did Broken Arrow and had that jazz group on the end of it and all that stuff, which was more of a montage of music, this was one of Richie's songs, and it needed to be him. So I said, what about hiring a steel guitar player? And I said, there's Red Rose, there's Buddy Emmons, there's Sneaky Pete, uh, and it happened to be that our our guitar tech at the time, Miles Thomas said, hey, I know a guy in Colorado named, you know, Rusty Young, and he's your age, and, you know, she, you know, they get an airplane ticket, and, you know, they're only 35 bucks, and the hotel rooms were 20, and it'd be a lot less expensive than hiring a triple scale guy. <laughs> so we did, we brought him out, and that was when my first met Rusty Young, and he put that wonderful steel guitar part on Kind Woman, which I later learned at his memorial that he started out learning to play steel guitar as, as a jazz player. Mm. That's where you start in steel guitar if you're serious, oh. as where you start in classical music if you're a pianist. So I learned at that memorial that, that he what, had studied jazz. So when he sat down on that session, kind woman that had jazz players on, he was quite comfortable enough. He had a broken steel guitar, broke on the plane. I gave him... Uh, St Stephen Steele's uh, Stephen Steele's Steel. Stephen Steele's steel guitar that was in the in the back, which was kind of a wreck. 
and and one of the necks is broken on it. So he chose the C9 neck, which is a jazz neck, and he played the solo. And, you know, it blew my mind. And years later, you know, we listened to some of that stuff that we had done, and we both were amazed that we could even play that well. And then the last album I did, which is out, still out right now with Rusty, was called Jim Messina in the Groove featuring Rusty Young. And we performed um, Kind Woman, Child's Claim to Fame. Uh, we did um, You Better Think Twice. We did Follow Your Dreams from Poco. And then two songs from Loggins Messina, which were Listen to a Country Song in Holiday Hotel. Those two songs were the songs I had started writing when I was in Poco. So I asked him, I said, hey, why don't we play, have you play on that? And then we'll tell the audience, this is what we would have sounded like if, if I had stayed in Poco. Mm -hmm. So we did that. And it, it, was, it, was, it was a fun album. People uh, really love it. And so one of the reasons why I'm still doing that song in my set to pay honor and tribute to Rusty. What made the Buffalo Springfield breakup just a, like, you know, a personality uh, sputting up against each other or... How did that, why did that happen? Well, you know, when I was there, I didn't see any of that stuff. Uh, I never saw any fussing or fighting or squabbling. Uh, they were all professional in the studio. Um, they were, there was a silence that kind of existed. They didn't seem to want to work together. <laughs> so, um, and there could be a multitude of reasons for that. You'd have to ask each person as to what they thought it was. From my standpoint, being 19 years old, they were great cats, man, but they were like herding cats. Oh. Get them into one place at one time. Uh, the few times that we did, uh, it was that was definitely magical. But um, I, I think it's very similar to maybe what happened with Kenny and I, is that you get to a point in, in a relationship uh, a musical direction where people start to change. Um, they start to grow into different interests. Uh, Kenny was starting to really fall more into a pop field, which is where he eventually led to. That was, was his, his desire. I think he always saw himself as a, as, as a pop artist, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why he wrote songs for many different pop artists. He's inspired by that. For me, you know, I, I'm an artist, but I'm, I'm also a producer and I view myself not as a rock star, but as an artist. I'm also a fine painter. I've got stuff getting ready to show in the Van Gogh Immersive here in Nashville. I love woodworking. I have a full wood shop, a full metal shop. Nice. I have a full studio that I used to. So for me, it's a way of life. It's not something that I'm looking you know, to do. And I think with, with, with the Buffalo Springfield, Neil was needing to be a solo artist. Kenny wanted to be a solo artist. That's what he started out to be. So at some point in time, when you have these goals and you're diverted in other directions, there's there's a need to change. Sometimes it's a violent change. Sometimes it's amicable. You know, it just depends on the personalities and how mature and grown up we are at the time we decide to make those changes. You're into Gestalt. You had mentioned one of the interviews. You're you're is, is that something you you uh, what did that do for you? Or what 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 is Gestalt's kind of an in the now thing, right? The the, the power of now. It's, well, no, no one yes. Uh, I decided at one point in time, I thought I was going to leave the music business and become a Gestalt practitioner. So I, I studied with some of the best people um, and Big Sur uh, and some, uh, the uh, Esalen Institute was really 
oh, yeah. the place where that all began with Fritz Perls. And I was very inspired by um, what that process did um, and how they don't believe in being therapists. They, they think they take the word therapist and look at it as the rapist. <laughs> they, they look at being to sit with somebody and facilitate and be able to get them to come out. The key with Gestalt um, practicing is to leave somebody in their conflict so that they can know what it is that's bothering them. And there's a whole process that it takes to get there. I studied that for about five years and was thinking about getting ready to maybe even mm. go back to school to get a, a legitimate education in it. But I realized after having worked with some folks in workshops that, first of all, I got left with a lot of the stuff that they were feeling and doing. And then I learned that I had to do work for myself to just get rid of that. And during the process of it, I started missing, you know, writing and doing music. And I realized that that process, if I used it on myself, that I, it helped me to learn to, to write and to get music out a lot better than, than I had in the first place, which beginning from my solo album with Oasis was, I think if you look at the lyric moving forward, much of my lyric had changed and become deeper and, and more um, uh, emotional than it had been in the past. So I went in and used that process to develop uh, a, a, uh, a workshop called the Songwriters Performance Workshop. And my mini thesis on that was, was about how to take that template and gestalt and move it into being able to use it to creatively create a, the ability to go from your emotions to your feelings, you know, where it divides in the brains of thoughts and images and verbally learn how to communicate that and have it being received by, by a listener who also hears it, either gets pictures or thoughts about it, either feels it and has an emotional reaction, which is a core to core. So I rewrote the process to work for songwriting, not therapy, and to be able to have people learn how to write songs, not hit songs, but mm. songs that hit another human being in a way mm. which they wanted it to, to, to have the affect. Now, can anybody learn that? You know, I'm not a musician, I'm not a songwriter, but let's say I can write a good short poem. Could I, is that, you know, it's like comedians. People say, well, you know, you, you can't really learn to be a comedian if you're not funny, inherently funny. And I mean, can you just write, you can't really write a good song if you just don't have it in you, right? I mean. Well, my workshop, the Songwriters Performance Workshop was also for uh, poets. And again, I would have, uh, the same process that I use to get my uh, participants to learn how to connect with their emotions and their feelings. That's why the process, when you get to the point where you, let, let's say we all have these emotional experiences that are stored into us, whether it's divorce or parent issues or whatever they might be, girlfriends. Well, they get stored in here and you don't know. And all of a sudden they kind of get this feeling you don't know what the feeling is, but you have a feeling and then an emotional reaction, I should say. And then it comes out as a feeling. You begin to feel and relate to what that feeling is. Does it feel like abandonment? Does it feel like love? Does it feel like both? You know, 
And then all of a sudden, the next process of the state of awareness comes into you have thoughts or pictures in your mind, and then you need to verbalize it. Now, in that verbal state of awareness, you may not be a singer, uh, and you may not be musically inclined, but you can use your words to express your feelings. And that's why it works in poetry, too. Um, you know, so yes, you, you don't have to be a musician mm. or to have feelings and emotions and be able to paint pictures with words. You just have to have the ability and the awareness to write it down and then push it back in and say, does this have any meaning? <laughs> and, and in my workshops, that's why, you know, I, I, when, when I work with people, I say, I don't want to know whether you like it or you don't like it. In fact, don't tell me. Hmm. I want the person who's sitting next to you in your workshop to tell me what did you experience when you heard this? You know, did you have an emotional reaction to it? Did you have any feelings? Did you get any pictures? Did you get any thoughts? Do, did it do anything at all? That's what we need to know, not whether you like it or not, right? So as a poet, it, it, it helps give poetry uh, some some standing as to whether people are, are feeling it or reacting to it. And then what we would do is put music behind it, kind of like you would do a score in a movie with, with, with a dialogue so that the poet would have some support and they would have this music that I would ask the students in the room to compose, to give a mood to what it was that that poet just said in their mm -hmm. poem. And then that would give them the ability, again, another step into saying, well, what if you, you did get a script? And somebody did want you to write, uh, you know, uh, uh, some music for this to score it. Now you're getting the experience to take the words and learning how to take and make music that you didn't create the words, but they, they're going to make you have feelings. Where do you, do you use a dark chord? Do you use a minor? Do you use a major? Is it upbeat? Is it, is it, is it the blues, you know, or is it classical, you know? That's great. All, I mean, all good stuff. It kind of probably applies to all the arts um, in a way. Absolutely. Tracy, you have, Tracy, have a wrap yeah. up. You, you still look, you look for talent, like you'd like to produce someone who's up and coming that you feel you can add to the career by with your pr producing skills. Um, you ever look like, you know, going, going to local concerts or clubs and find someone and go, oh, I can you make. Know, I'm, not look I'm not looking for it like I used to. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm focused now more on myself as an artist. I want to do for me what I did for Kenny and Richie and Steven and Neil. Um, I, I felt at a time it's time for me to do that. That's my focus. That doesn't mean if I, I don't see, if I see somebody and I think they're worthy of it. In fact, when I first moved to Nashville, I did find somebody that I thought that was worthy of it. But what I didn't want to do is what I did with Kenny, which is to jump in there and help him do every aspect of it. Because I don't know that that necessarily works for everybody. And I don't know in the end whether somebody resents you for it. The important thing is to get them to learn how to do it for themselves. And I did help this person take them down this step. But when it got to the point where they needed to, we needed to, to go to somebody for a record, deal, I explained to them, you, you know, they may not accept you at this place and they may not accept you at the other place. This was really more in Nashville. Mm -hmm. But if they don't, 
That doesn't mean it's game over. That means we go to New York or we go to Los Angeles or we go to a place where there's a record label who cares about you and wants to support you. And that was a deal breaker. They go, oh, no, no, no. I, I, if I can't do it here, I don't want to. And so that tells me right off the bat, okay, that's fine. But that means that person's not going to go all the way. And, mm-hmm. and if, if I'm going to get involved with somebody to help them in their career and, and help myself as a producer, I want to know that I got a, a partner. Kenny was a partner all the way. He, was, he wasn't experienced, but he was willing. He went every step of the way with me as an artist, note for note, song for song, town to town, everything. He was committed. And that's the kind of commitment that it takes to be successful. Yeah. So they say, you know, 90% of success is showing up. Um, like the king. <laughs> Thank you. Showing up, showing up but not stoned. Showing <laughs> up but not stoned. Yeah, not stoned. Not like Dewey. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't do what Dewey does. Don't do what Dewey does. He doesn't do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. This is great. Just to repeat, at uh, June 23rd, which is a week from Thursday, you'll be, well, this podcast will uh, air in a couple of days, but uh, Thursday, uh, June 23rd at the uh, Community Theater in Fairfield, Connecticut. Sacred Heart Community Theater. Yeah, Sacred Hearts Community Theater, and uh, which is a restored, beautiful, old, restored movie theater. Um, this is in Fairfield, right? Yeah, Fairfield, Connecticut. Yeah, it's a great theater. And... Um, and July 15th, 16th at the Hollywood Bowl with uh, Loggins and Messina reunion of sorts. Um, and thank you so much for taking yeah, the time. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, guys. Thank you for getting me away. I mean, I realized that I'm, I'm sitting here and I go, uh, you know, I got a Zoom meeting and it was quarter to 10. I'm like, oh my God, I haven't even showered. Showered, playing, do my hair, and covered my puffs, and uh, no demerits for that. That's right. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for a great. Thanks a lot, Jim.